Hello everyone and welcome to the Neil and Robbie Ultra Cycling Podcast. So I hope you're all well. So Neil, how are you? Uh, I, yeah, I am, I am alright. Finally feel like I'm on the road to recovery uh, and it's taken a while. It's been, what, two weeks since the GB Divide finished? And yeah, just feel like I'm getting back onto, back onto feeling a little bit normal. Cool. I um yeah, excellent, excellent. I, I I literally, mate, we've got so much to talk about today. We have I know an obscene amount of, of stuff that's happened in the past few weeks to talk about. But mainly this episode is all gonna be about you and the G B divide, which was a very epic, epic race for you. But before we get into that, a lot has happened in the ultra cycling world this week that has to most 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 important be spoken about so the first thing i want to talk about and this is something that you've you've probably come across yourself if if you follow any kind of long distance cycling is uh, neil i'm not going to be very good with the surname on this one is uh, anna a friend of yours if i'm correct has had a bit of an accident. Yeah, I mean, really, yeah, tragic news in, in the ultra cycling world and the kind of news that we all dread to hear about any competitor. So, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say Anna was a was a friend. I met her very briefly at the Two Volcano Sprint last year and uh, and she then disappeared into the sunset and left me for dust. Um, but, you know, Anna's had a, a really tragic accident on uh, this year's Trans-Iberica um, she was descending at night and uh, I mean, we don't know the exact details, but she came across a, a herd of wild boar in the road, uh, had a horrific, what must have been high speed crash, uh, some pretty life changing injuries. Um, she was um, she was in the road unconscious for an hour and it was two hours before uh, some other competitors found her and, and by the sounds of things, very lucky to have, have survived and you know she's she's not a sponsored rider but she's one of the best in the world um not just amongst the females but one of the best riders full stop um single mum who's obviously now her, her daughter's going to be in um you know quite sad situation trying to deal with all of this Anna's in hospital um just really really sad story um and you know obviously our hearts and thoughts are with Anna and Ruby and and all of her family and really wishing her the best of uh the best and speediest of recoveries um there is a there has been a GoFundMe campaign set up uh to try and help cover the costs of you know what's going to be a pretty expensive uh, rehabilitation program so you know we're going to put the link to that into the uh into the program notes um and already it looks like the ultra cycling world has really rallied around this, which I think is such a, a, you know, gives such a great indication of the of the community spirit that we have going on. And, uh, you know, when something like this happens to one of our own, we really rally around to help out. So if you're listening, uh, go check that out. And, um, you know, the, the, the family and, and I think the wider community would really appreciate any any support anyone can give to that. So really sad and something we don't like to see and you know thoughts thoughts and wishes yeah that's uh yeah it's it's really really um yeah just just so unfortunate to to say the least and yeah it's uh the more awareness can be raised about this uh, the better it's always one of these things with ultra cycling that you know people people do have accidents and 
you know, you, you, you hope it's not going to happen, but we're all on, we're all on roads. It's, you know, there's the, the possibilities of these things happening and, you know, it's, it's how about as a community now, it's how we react to what's happened and how we can all pull together and help. And I think that's going to be the most important thing, which is, uh, you know, really going to help, help them, you know, pull, pull through this, which is, yeah, which is going to be quite a journey for her. So I think we all need to support as much as we can, really. Yeah, and I think there's been an uh, an article on .watcher.cc uh, looking at race safety, where they've spoken to some of the leading uh, riders and uh, and race organisers. So um, Simon from uh, who organises the race around Rwanda and was racing in Transibirica uh, contributed to that article. So that's probably worth going and having a read as well. I've I've not checked it out yet. That's something for me to look at this afternoon. I think. Um, Anyway, moving on to brighter news. Um, let's stay with Transibirica because that was quite an interesting race. And, and really for Ulrich's stunning comeback after a mechanical. Have, have you been following the Transibirica? Yeah, yeah. Yes and no. So I, I followed it and anything with Ulrich in is just, he just, he's just so fast. So the first eight hours of his ride he was averaging over 20 miles an hour so over 33 kilometers an hour for the first eight hours which is just ridiculous and he said he had just really good tailwinds and you know that's people don't even hold that for like two hours on a flat normal ride so it just goes to show how ridiculous this guy is but yeah I heard like literally what I'd heard about it is I saw on his Instagram, he had this mechanical and he said, well, I'm going to need to get kind of like a taxi or some transport back into the town. I've lost, you know, half a day. And then he just comes back and just demolishes the field. Oh, no, no, it was more, it was, it was more than that. So, and, and there is a, there is an interesting learning point, which I'm sure he won't, won't mind us talking about. So basically he ripped off his rear mech. Uh, which is actually the second time that's happened to him recently, I think. And I think part of the issue was he fitted an old mech, which was slightly out of alignment, which might have contributed to this issue happening. And that's kind of plays to the wider learning point. You know, when you're doing an ultra race, if there's any doubt about any of your kit or any of your equipment, then change it before the race starts. I mean, I've done this with tyres before. Start a race with tyres with a with a plug in them or where the sealant's plugged a hole and it's just come back to bite me. So unless I know my tyres have got no holes in, then I will always start a race with a new set of tyres just to avoid that kind of issue. But anyway, so Ulrich ripped his rear mech off. He got a taxi to the local town. The local bike shop, all they could do was put it into single speed mode which then allowed Ulrich to get a train to Madrid where he went to, I think he ended up at the Merida bike shop or the Merida distributor or something. Uh, and he doesn't ride a Merida, he, he rides an open. Uh, where he managed to get a new rear mech back to where he'd left off. So he actually took 21 hours out of his race time. It wasn't half a day, 21 hours. He'd gone from first to eighth. He then clearly had a divine motivation or something, whatever we want to call it. And he then smashed it out over the next 12 hours, went from, I think over 12 hours, went from eighth back to first and ended up winning by quite some margin. It's a stunning ride. He's just ridiculous. He is just, 
ridiculous as a rider though like he he's the kind of thing that if you're trying to win a race you know he's going to haunt your haunt your nightmares quite strongly uh, totally totally i mean for for my money definitely the best road ultra racer right now oh definitely uh I, I want to see him in a longer race. I want I want to see him on something kind of TCR, North Cape four thousand kind of length and see see how he gets on at that. I think that'll be a great thing to watch. Um. Anyway, right. Look, speaking of mechanicals, because uh, that wasn't the only mechanically themed or mechanical issue themed news we've got this week. Uh, let's talk about GB Duro. So, GB Duro, or as I like to call it, the easy off road ride across the country compared to GB Divide, uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek. Um, although I think most of us on GB Divide have been looking at some of the photos from GB Duro and looking longingly at some of those nice gravel tracks that they managed to find, <laughs> wondering why, 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 why did we not get to do those? Um, basically, Angus has been destroying the competition and we're not talking easy competition here. Uh, the rider behind him was none on a none other than round the world legend Mark Beaumont. Um, he put 11 hours into Mark on the first stage. Like, I think Angus wow. finished in 34 hours. Mark finished in 44 hours. So that's 10 hours out of a 44-hour time window for Mark. So, you know, and that kind of, uh, that domination continued and he was he was all set to win by a huge margin but then with three hours to go, his rear hub exploded and he ended up taking a bike from a, a dot watcher spectator, someone who was out riding in the hope of catching some of the riders. And he rode through to the finish on that other bike. Um, now, the initial post from the Racing Collective, who are the organisers, seemed to give their consent to this only to reverse that decision later when they got to the finish or when Angus got to the finish line and he was disqualified and Mark came first in the end so yeah what are your thoughts on that so I, I'll be honest I you know I have been thinking a lot about this because obviously you know, this is a big race. It's it's GV Duro and it, it's Mark Beaumont who's just an absolute legend and so is so is Angus Angus Young, isn't it? Is his second name, if I'm correct in saying. Yeah. And um do you know what? Like I, I don't want to get into the politics of this. I think maybe the organisers, from what I've I've heard people say, let him get to the end and then told him like, look, you're disqualified after when that was their original thought all along, just because it would help him finish that race. And I know it sounds weird. I think that would kind of stop any too much controversy on the last kind of stage. I, I'm i just so gutted for Angus. That That's it. Like, genuinely, I, I want to have an opinion. But I, all I can think of when I think of this situation is... Imagine if you were Angus, you've given everything you've got to go that far, that quickly. You have just done something phenomenal and you get to the end that literally and then someone just goes, sorry, mate. Um, yeah, you're, you're just you're just you're disqualified for using someone else's bike when you've had this catastrophic failure. You know, I think 
there's probably a lot more things that a lot of people are probably thinking oh he could have he could have tried to get that repaired quicker he could have used duct tape and all this you know he could have done this but literally when you're in that frame of mind where you're near the end of a race and you've been racing that hard for that long and you think okay the bike's destroyed this isn't going to get repaired uh, there's not really anywhere I'm going to get another one of these I'm not allowed to ask for help from the people I am literally this is finish or not finish then I can see why you do that so I'll be honest I, I don't entirely know how I feel for like uh, in the whole situation but I'm just gutted for, for Angus Young but I, I think Mark Beaumont's an absolute ledge and it, it's good to see him in a competition like this but then again I, I really feel for Angus and even Mark Beaumont has you know put a post on Angus Angus's you know status about it just going I just found out this has happened I'm so sorry to hear and all this so the community is kind of behind Angus but I just really feel for him because you could tell he just He's a day-to-day -day guy who's just done something phenomenal and it's kind of been taken away after he'd done it. Imagine crossing that finish line thinking, yes, I've won it, and then realising, and then getting told you've been disqualified. You know, that's so disheartening. And I can't help but just think, God, Angus, you know, that's really not a nice situation to be in. What about you? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, look, I'm absolutely gutted for Angus because that's that's an, that's a really awful thing to happen but the the awful thing is the mechanical that's the th that's the thing here yes yeah, yeah yeah mechanicals are a fact of life when we do this and i've don't think i've heard of anybody jumping on a passerby's bike i i i for me it's always the accepted or the the understood rule of mechanicals is you get yourself to a bike shop you fix it, you come back to where you came off the route, and then you carry on riding. And some some yeah. events are harder on that than the others. So, for example, on TCR, they're very clear. You're allowed to get a taxi to a bike shop, but then you have to ride back to the course and then continue on from the point at which you left. And, you know, the even recent races are abound with tales of, of issues happening. And riders doing just that. I mean, we're going to come on to talk about Silk Road mountain race in a bit. And yeah, Silk Road is slightly different in that you're not going to find a passing rider who just happens to be out and about. Um, Sofiane destroyed his rear wheel or, or had a few issues, broke some spokes, bent his wheel. He got to a main road. He took a taxi 50 kilometers to the nearest town. He then spent four hours rebuilding a wheel then got a taxi back to where he'd left the route, and then he carried on racing. That's kind of what we normally do when you have a mechanical on these things. And, and mechanicals are a fact of ultra racing life. We can't avoid them, especially on something like GB Duro or GB Divide or uh, or Silk Road. You know, these are real properly tough tests of, of your machine. And mechanical's going to happen. Like, what surprised me was that in the first place, the racing collective kind of indicated that it was okay. And I think that's to do with a mismatch between what we see as the voice of GB Juro, which is actually somebody who's commenting for them on their social media versus the actual race directors. And so someone doing the social media will have looked at it and gone, oh, cool, he's borrowed somebody's bike, go Angus. Whereas that's not the race director's viewpoint. The race director isn't doing social media because they're directing the race. And they're going, well, actually, no, that's kind of 
you, you know, if you were just riding in the hills and you broke your bike, no one would come along and lend you their bike. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that's the challenge that we have. And that's where people are reacting because they're like, oh, well, you said it was OK. And then you disqualified him. And I just, yeah, maybe next time they need to control their just be careful in situations like this about what kind of messages they're sending out because ultimately I, I think it was the right decision yeah I think I've really struggled to have an opinion on this because it, it just doesn't none of it seems very clear at all does that make sense but you're you're right I think you know uh, yeah but I, I disagree it is it is really clear everybody knows when you break something you try and get yourself to a bike shop, you get it fixed, then you come back to where you left the course and you carry on racing. Yeah, it doesn't really... I get where you're coming from and self-supported is... Uh, that's how I've interpreted every single set of race rules in every race I've done. Do you know, I had a really interesting um, situation years back and I'm not going to give any really details about the, you know who and what, what race and when and where, whatever. But... um. Yeah, I was riding along and there was uh, a competitor on a very similar bike to me and I don't know, you know, why I had done this, but I'd put a spare seat post clamp in my bag because Linsky's are renowned for the seat post can sometimes, seat post collars can sometimes crack and uh, I kept one with me and someone else who was uh, also on a Linsky came past me standing with his seat dropped to the bottom. And he goes, my seat post collar's gone, and uh, and you know it's it's you know it's self-supported. And um, I said to him, you know, look, you know, I've I've got I actually carried a spare just in case. And do you know what? I didn't offer, and he didn't ask because you just have to carry on yourself. And he just goes, I'm going to see if I can find one at the next shop. And bear in mind, this is four a.m. And he just ploughed on, standing up with his saddle bag flying everywhere, you know, and, and I, you just, you don't offer and people don't ask. And that's just the way I, that's the way I viewed the rules at the time. Then I did feel a bit like, oh, okay, but he got it sorted. He, and then he, uh, he literally like, he was probably a few places behind me when we came to the finish. But yeah, that's kind of how you just perceive what, what you're doing. But he's right. I don't think the guys are very clear and, self-supported racing is is just one thing and that's there's always going to be places for interpretation but you are right you normally go to a bike shop you'd pick up another wheel or something like that and you'd maybe carry on but yeah i like everyone in this situation that's the problem so you, you don't uh, my opinion's a bit spread yeah i i like i said i think ultimately they made the right decision um i i i think the issue was around the the initial communication and that that is what has caused the confusion here. Uh, if they'd have said nothing and then said at the end he's been disqualified because of taking somebody else's bike or borrowing somebody else's bike, then that's, yeah, that's um, or not given a time. The, the crazy thing is he probably had time to walk to the finish and still would have beaten Mark. I was about to say that, yeah. <laughs> I, I, he had, what, 20 hours on him? More? Yeah. <clears throat> How far did he have to go? Like 35k? You walk 35k in like 10k in 10 hours. Well, I didn't I didn't realize it was that close to the finish. Oh, uh, really close to the finish. Could have done a Chris Froome. Could have done. Could have done. That would have been cool, but going back to what you said, um 
about someone else who had a rear wheel failure, Sofiane. He that is why he's my favourite ultra racer at the minute. I just I just adore the guy. Is that why? I I like his singing. I love his singing. <laughs> should we should we talk Silk Road Mountain Race then? Yeah, he's just he's Sofiane. He's just the most amazing, funny guy, no matter how tired he is, and a guy that's never really bloody rebuilt a wheel just so what happened is he had basically smashed his rear wheel to pieces and then like you said he got the got a taxi got to a main road got a taxi and then just learned and just rebuilt his own wheel just off the back of not really knowing how to do it and then went back on to yet one of the toughest self-supported ultra racing courses and just smashed it out to the end without losing his lead yeah i mean it was it was amazing. I mean, you know, as much as we talk about Ulrich being the best road uh, ultra racer right now, there is no doubt that Sofian is the best off-road ultra racer right now. I mean, he dominated Silk Road from start to finish. Uh, you know, I think at the time he had his mechanical, he was, so he was probably about 1,400 kilometers in and he had a 200 kilometer lead over second place. He came back and he still had a 100 kilometer lead, which soon then extended out again. But, you know, I think what was interesting for me is that is the way he changed his normal race approach. He, he was really he showed his ability to adapt on this race because um, and this is something that I picked up during during GB Divide in that these long, hard off road races where. You know, GB Divide, it's incredibly technical riding, which just beats you up day after day. On Silk Road, there was a lot of hiker bike, but it's also a lot of altitude, a lot of really not just wildly variable weather conditions, but also some pretty extreme weather conditions. I mean, they had temperatures down to minus 10. They had snowstorms. They had rain. Um, You know, on these kinds of races, you have to spend more time looking after the body than you do on something like say TCR or a, or a road a road event. You can push harder on a road event because you're not under the same level of physical stress. Whereas these ones, you've got to look after yourself. And that's what Sofiane did. You could see him taking six hours of sleep one night. That's that's not Sofiane. We know Sofiane's known for riding through the night and never sleeping. Um, but he took sleep. He was prioritizing sleep. He even stayed in a hotel one morning like an extra hour or so, so he could have the buffet breakfast. You know, the guy was on holiday, clearly. <laughs> but, you know, it just goes to show how um, the best guys and girls are not just fast, they're not just good at executing a strategy, but they also have that adaptability, and that's what Sofiane showed there. And and he just, yeah, he just destroyed the field, and it was incredible, incredible to watch. Um, I think the other thing to talk about here which i just want to highlight is you know one of the big bits of news on day one was that james hayden's dot wasn't moving and everybody was like what's happened to james what's happened to james you know is this you know did last year get to him or something and everybody was speculating wildly um and the reality was um someone in his hotel had tested positive for covid given previous you know given some of the issues he has around asthma and breathing he decided to not take the risk and to not take the risk of being positive and spreading that through a remote community. Um, so he decided to withdraw before the race had started. And, uh, you know, I, for one, totally applaud that decision. What a 
brave decision to make because he's built his whole year around the Silk Road Mountain Race and making amends for 2019. Well, not making amends, but trying to, I guess, banish the memory of 2019. Incredibly brave move, and I think he should be totally applauded for that. Credit to him. Yeah, like, honestly, when I when I read that on his status, because I saw he hadn't moved, because I was looking at, like, the front of the pack, like, where's, I wonder where James is? Because I hadn't really caught up on any of the news for probably about a day. And I was like, I wonder where James is? And I was looking for him, and then I was just like, he's still at the start. And then it hit me, I was just like, and I looked at his, his Instagram, and I was like, do you know what? Yeah, totally. Like, that's a very, very, you know unselfish decision to make you know we are in a global pandemic still and although in the uk we're you know there's a lot of the majority of us are vaccinated now we're all getting a little bit more relaxed about it you know he he made a he made a really strong decision there and you know he should be really proud of himself for actually doing that he should you know absolute credit to him and you know he's a he's a i've always liked him i've always thought he was an awesome guy and you know that just just goes to show the bigger picture he's yeah really smart decision totally uh, and just you know one final thing on silk road big shout out to one of the athletes that i coach phil shirley he's still out there in fact i'm just going to quickly check where he is um he is currently pushing hard to try and make cp3 cp3 closes uh, which is at sonkel lake which i've been to um stunning place um absolutely stunning place um CP3 closes at 12 p.m. local time tomorrow, I think. So he's got about 20 hours and he's got to go uh, 67 kilometers, which on the face of it seems like, well, easy. But, you know, he's got uh, about 2,000 meters of climbing to get there and he's got to go over a pass at uh, 3,200 metres. So uh, not not an easy ask, for sure. Um, but he's been moving on well today, um, and uh, and he's been riding amazingly well throughout the whole race, taking it really sensibly, um, coping with the conditions pretty well. And, uh, yeah, so come on, Phil, you've got this. Go, Phil. So the big talking about today... The G, the Great British Divide. I, I can't even say that properly. Then I can't even bring myself. I can't even bring myself to say it. I've still got PTSD about it. <laughs> we. I think we really have to start by saying congratulations on a third place finish. That that's that's just amazing. I bet you're buzzing. Yeah. Uh, yes. Absolutely. Uh, totally buzzing. In fact. Um, and I think it's one of those things where it's taken a little bit of a while for that buzz to set in. Uh, if anybody saw the photo of me at the finish line, I look like a broken hunchback. That's the only way to describe it. I look miserable. I'm sodden wet. I'm hunched over because I'm like, you know, 11 days hunched over a bike, getting rattled off road. You know, I felt like my spine had curved irreparably. Um, so... Yeah, it's taken a while for it to sink in, but now I look back on it and I'm like, wow, that was that's that was an achievement to be really, really proud of. 
Yeah, no, I can quite imagine. And I actually sent that picture to one of my clients who I'm, uh, you know, helping train to do ultra racing. And I was like, if you look like this at the end of the race, then you know you've given everything. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that, but even, it was just, because there was so much rain in that photo, you just look like, a literally like, you just look like a drowned cyclist. You just looked like, I just sat there thinking, you know, there is nothing. I just thought, do you know what? I'm going to wait to talk to you in a few days because it looks like you just need to get into a hotel and just be a- away from the world and the outside for four days. Um. Oh mate, that that last that last twenty kilometers from Kinloch Eleven to the finish line in Fort William was the longest, wettest, most miserable, never-ending bit of riding that I've ever done in my life. And I've ridden in a lot of really shit conditions before. That just just was yeah, I was broken. I was a broken man. I, uh, climbing out of Kin, I, you know, I, I mean, getting into Kinlock 11, we'd already got come over the devil staircase, which is like an hour of pushing your bike, dragging your bike, whatever. And then you got over the top thinking, right, nice fast descent. No, because they've put drainage channels every hundred meters, which if you're on like a full suspension enduro rig and you were feeling fresh, you'd fly over them. But when it's day 11 of a of an ultra race and you're broken and your forks are no longer really working quite as well as they did and your bike's carrying like six kilos of extra kit you're stopping you're getting off you're lifting over you get on you ride 100 meters you stop you get off you lift over you ride on and it's just like that was just getting down to kinloch 11 coming out of kinloch 11 i'd stop for some food the rain had just redoubled its efforts to just flood the whole of the the whole of the west of Scotland. Um, so I came out of the this pub having eaten some food into just what looked like water pouring from the sky. And you go straight into an hour's push up this narrow, rocky bit of single track onto the old military road. And you get to the top and you look at the map and you think, oh, it's still got like 18 kilometers to go and it's you're riding through a river the rain's hammering down and it was just so miserable and it took so long and yeah I was so cold and so wet and so miserable at the end yeah drowned rat time so tell me so let's go let's go back to the start so you're already you're at the start line, uh, you go into the race. Uh, let, let's talk about your first couple of days in. Talk to me about how you were feet, what, what you thought uh, over the first couple of days. Like, were, did you, were you surprised at uh, how difficult the terrain was? Talk to me about where, where your head was at and how the journey was going over the first few days. Um, so uh, I didn't have the kind of lead into the race that I was looking for. Um, I was with two weeks to go. I'm absolutely flying, peaking, you know, peaked my training, was just looking for that really nice taper in, keep the legs ticking over, keep some intensity in them to, to keep them sharp and get ready to race. And what actually happened was bad, big crash, bad attack of gout on the sofa for two weeks. So I always say to people, what you do in the last two weeks doesn't matter because you've done all your training. And I really put that one to the test on this one. So I kind of went in 
mentally a little bit unsure of, of where I was. And, and for sure, that first kind of seven hours uh, through through the high wheel down to the start of the South Downs Way was 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 tough on the legs. They're literally like, Neil, what the hell are you doing? You've, you've been on the sofa for two weeks and now you're trying to smash us to pieces. Um, but the first, you know, the first two days were all kind of familiar territory. Certainly the first kind of day and a half was all really familiar territory because uh, it's the South Downs, which is close to where I live. Um, the South Downs, uh, from a riding perspective, is awesome because it's all rideable um or nearly all rideable um nice wide tracks um fast descents good climbs so uh the first first two days were absolutely awesome in fact it, it was it, it took a long while for it really to to kick in and be not quite so good um loved the first day uh coming across the south downs as the sun was going down uh riding a little bit with rob uh, I'd been riding a little bit with Josh. Josh had had a few issues that day, which is why he was slumming it back with me and Rob. Um, but yeah, sun was going down over the South Downs. Um, there was a load of rain to the north, but that wasn't coming uh, to where we were, so missed all the rain. First day, did like 213k. Uh, had a really nice bivy spot up on the South Downs, which was amazing. Uh, so that was really, really good. Day two... Uh, it started in the worst possible way, finished in the worst possible way, and was pretty awesome in between. Um, I set, set off, and um, I think I said this on one of my Instagram posts, familiarity breeds contempt, because I shut off thinking, I know where I'm going, and uh, promptly went the wrong way for five minutes down a hill. Um, and then I had to turn around and climb back up, so I wasted half an hour going the wrong way off the start line. But yeah, I mean, the south, the second half of the South Downs didn't really let up. Really, really tough riding. Um, so was pretty, pretty tired by the time I got to the first checkpoint. Uh, but, the, you know, the checkpoint was awesome. They fixed some, uh, you know, I, I had very few mechanicals across the whole race. Um, like hard, in fact, one, really. That was it, which was uh, I had meant to re-bleed the rear brake before the race. And I forgot, um, mainly because I was off my bike for two weeks. Uh, but they soon fixed that at the uh, at the wood cyclery and, and got me back on the way. Um, I, I think it was towards the end of day two where we started to see some of the challenges of the course kicking in. Um, I left CP2 at like half six in the evening thinking, right, six hours to Warminster, night K. Yeah, that's about right. Get into a hotel, have a good night's sleep, get there about midnight. And suddenly you realize you're kind of fighting through so much overgrown uh trails so many overgrown trails um you know you're riding through bits where you, you can't see the path you're just riding hoping that there's a path underneath there and you don't fall off it um it was it was horrific and it took me like three hours longer than i thought it would take to do those that 90k and most of that was in the last the last 40k took like six hours it was it was insane um but yeah then after that then just really kicked on from there great run through the rest you know through england and into wales great run across wales to to cp2 awesome kind of sunset ascent of brecon gap over the brecon gap in the middle of the night bivied on a golf course which was hilarious and then mid wales mid wales was just epic 
Um, like if you've never ridden Mid Wales, go. And Mid Wales is like gravel biking territory. This is one of the few bits that was okay for gravel bikes. The rest of it was pretty much pure mountain biking. But it was so yeah, it's just epic. Um, loved it, and all the way to um, through to Mac was um, was just stunning. Nice. So you got the first couple of days in the bag. So I I started to notice over just from doing a bit of dot watching that around this. So in my in my opinion, when you go into any ultra race, the first four or five days you just start to feel worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and then once you pass those five days you've kind of got yourself some rhythm but this is where we started to see people having mechanicals dropping off uh, scratching and i think a lot of people had seen 2000 kilometers as oh like 2000k okay that's you know 1200 miles yeah, I could probably smash that out in like seven to ten days. But I think people really started to appreciate the challenges you were coming across. You know, that the terrain was tough. It was really hilly. You know, 30,000 metres, we're talking that's more than... That's nearly three and a half Everests, like, let's be honest. But it's not as in as simple as going up a normal road. These are, these are trails and even descents aren't quick because you can't just let go of the brakes and, and hope for the best. So moving through, you know, you're getting passed through Mid Wales, you're getting to the place where you need to be. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, how it's carried on going because I know the weather turned and it, it got pretty treacherous for you, mate. Yeah, I think... Um... Uh, yeah i mean the route was savage basically if you were you know you pick every single hard bit of kind of i guess in in the wild trails versus trail centers so you pick every single hard location to go and ride your bike from point to point in the uk find the hardest possible route through each of those locations and then link them all together and you get a you get a feeling for the scale of the difficulty and i think ultimately it was fairly it was it was hard uh, a lot of climbing and some overgrown bits which were just unpleasant um but not ridiculous through to like the south uh, or through to the peak district uh, which was uh, day uh, end of day five, I got to the Peak District. So if you look at the distances I was covering, so like day one was 200, 213k, day two was 249k, day three, 200k, day four, 200k, day five, 185k. Then it suddenly changed. Then it was 125k, 140k, 130k, 140k, 150k, you know. So... It, it's like you'd gone through all this kind of hard riding and some bits. I mean, I talked about Mid Wales being amazing. The first 20k out of Mac was amazing. Classic Mid Wales riding. So big fire roads up, some amazing single track along the, the ridge lines and then some fast fire road descents. And then from about 20k outside of Mac through to Oswestry, it was just awful. That's the only way I can describe it. It was awful. There were, you were dragging your bike up hills. There were bridleways that didn't exist. There were just, I think Kevin seemed to have picked every single horrible, steep 
potholed, rough country lane coming out of Wales. And if there was an opportunity to go up some overgrown hiker bike, we were going up the overgrown hiker bike. And that was really tough because you, you kind of wanted to just recover on what had been a hard but beautiful mid-Wales section and kind of do some nice rolling country roads to kind of go, oh, yeah, that was really amazing. And instead, you were just getting battered every 10 minutes, battered, battered, battered. And, yeah, I got to Oswestry and, and I was pretty, pretty broken. I had to stop. And I had I had hot food in Oswestry for the first time in five days, which I think helped. But I had to take time just to collect myself mentally because I was I was struggling at that point. But it was still you could still move. You know, you were still moving your bike. You still were covering big distances. Um, and then I think the the whole character of the race changed once you start to move into the Peak District. The first bit was beautiful, Tissington Trail, really really nice. And eventually you then you deposited at the descent down Cavedale into Castleton. I say descent. It's a 45 minute walk. Um, it, again, if you were on a full, fully bouncy enduro rig and you knew no one was coming the other way and you were fresh with no kit. Yeah, it's probably it's rideable. But with kit being tired and even with me having a 100 mil travel fork on it's it's not rideable i don't think anybody rode it um and that was the start of the really really challenging phase um but it was for me it was coming back into home territory that's where i grew up riding mountain bikes so you know coming out of castleton going over mantor on the broken road the descent off the far side of mantor was just spectacular I was ready for the climb of Jacob's Ladder. So for those who don't know, Jacob's Ladder is is quite a steep, rocky step climb. Um, and again, it was, you know, half an hour of literally lifting your bike up a step, stepping up after it, lifting your bike up a step, stepping after it. But, you know, I, I was I knew that was coming and I was ready for it. And it was worth it because the descent off the other side is amazing yes it's rocky yes it's hard yes it's technical but and you know you're weaving around through ditches and streams and stuff but that to me is what mountain biking was always about as a kid um and it and it was fantastic and that that whole peak district section sorry peaks into pennines uh south pennines all the way through to the north pennines i i absolutely loved it all the way through to maybe coming down off dunfell I mean, I get why we did that route down off Dunfell, but it, it is not pleasant. It's challenging navigation. But yeah, that whole stretch through the, the Pennines was just, I mean, it was awful because that's where the weather really changed. And, you know, you're riding along in full wet weather kit. You've got your jacket on, you've got your waterproof trousers on, um, you've got your skull cap on, you've got sandwich bags on your feet to keep your feet as dry as they can be. And it's just hammering it down with rain as you're riding over these moorlands, around these reservoirs. But do you know what? I was loving it. It was amazing. So then as, as the race went onwards, even some of the, the top contenders to actually win this start to fall. So no, not fall. That's a bad word. Start to withdraw. So you've got Rob Gardner. He he had quite an interesting story, and I'm sure you probably heard a bit about this on the actual race itself. But I just want to talk a little bit about this just quickly, because roughly at this point in your timeline, this was happening to him. So he 
had left his bike outside of a shop. It had been stolen by someone with all his equipment and uh, all he had was his like phone and wallet on him. So he, he's like, Where, well, where's my bike? And he's, he's looking for his bike and then he decides to load up the tracker so he can actually track his own bike that's been stolen and he tracks it. Someone, a random passerby comes and helps him out and they get in this guy's car and they start following the tracker. It goes to a, a bit of an estate and then he sees someone ride past on it. He chases them and eventually he, you know, it, he knocks on a door. He thinks the person have gone into and uh, it, it just turns into a bit of a, a bit of a big mess really and he, he realises probably a few hours into this process that he's probably not going to get his bike back and I think he was he was really upset and really gutted obviously it's his bike but all his kit on from years and years and years of adventuring and uh, what happened at this point is a dot watcher uh, decided to lend him his bike you know in a situation like this this wasn't really a mechanical he just had his bike stolen so he's he gets this other person's bike and he rallies together some kit and gets gets back on the road and starts you know chasing chasing you down actually very closely so and then literally a day or two after this he he withdraws you know and then at a similar time we've got Josh Ibert, who had obviously he's got quite a lot I think going on with himself he had said that he'd been moving house and all this and he'd been very busy and tired before this and he decided to come uh, come away from the race and uh then it it bumped you right up the way to to third place you know and there's people and you're just silently suffering in there just digging away at all these miles but for you the weather just gets even worse and you start making your way into, I'm guessing roughly you're coming into Scotland around this point. So talk to me about these kind of the, the latter side of the race. So Josh has just come out. Rob's just come out. What what are you thinking? What are you feeling at this point? Oh, I mean, so I think uh, Josh scratched when he got to leak. Um, and yeah, as you say, he had so much going on and and if you're going into these things with with stress from other sources, it can be really difficult to to mentally keep driving yourself forwards. And I, and I think he you know he knows what it takes to to win these things, having done GB Giro last year. But that means he also knows how hard you have to push yourself. Um, Rob, yeah, I mean, I was got absolutely gutted for Rob. Um, I think actually it was a friend of his that lent him a bike. Um, and there's probably a whole further conversation about whether that falls within. The rules or not, um, I'm not going to get into that here. Um, but man, he did well to come back. Um, but, you know, he was then on a bike that was the wrong size for him. And I, I think, you know, like me, he realised the big change when we start to get into the Peak District. And I think he really was suffering going through the Pennines because it's it's a lot of very rocky, bangy technical descents, which... Look, I've been riding mountain bikes for 30-odd years. Um, and, you know, that experience counts for a lot on a race like this. Um, whereas Rob will be the first to admit that he, he just he doesn't have that uh, level of it, of experience or, or skill on a mountain bike. So he was he was finding it tough. Um, but he was pushing me hard, man. You know, I kept looking behind him because he, he basically blasted through mid-wales, took no, almost no sleep, and... From me being almost a day clear in third place, suddenly he's like four or five hours behind me and pushing me hard. So you know, yeah, he kept me he kept me honest, uh, and and through till about I think the morning of the 
probably the sixth morning, seventh morning, where I was about to head over to CP3, where he just he texts me in the morning and he says, you can have a line, mate, I'm about to scratch. <laughs> I was like, thank goodness. Um, but, I, you know, I still loving it. I was absolutely loving it. It was, I was really relishing the conditions. Uh, I felt strong taking them on. My food planning was good. That worked really, really well. Basically, I was... Once a day, I was stopping and getting a lot of food to last me for 24 hours and eating well, carrying on pushing pushing through. I think where it's, where the wheels came off for me was just after crossing into Scotland. So um, I'd had a, you know, a great day coming up and over um, Great Dunfell. That was, a, that was a really, for me, that was a really big big milestone in the race was getting over Great Dunfell because I knew that the climb up was pretty nasty um, I knew that the descent down was sketchy at best uh, I'd been properly soaked on the way into it um, coming through like Kirby Stephen and um, uh, Appleby so and and yeah, the descent was was actually worse than I thought it it was going to be. In that you know the 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 terrain was just bog everywhere. Uh, the path was non-existent. Um, like parts of it, rivers had washed it away. You were trying to jump backwards and forwards across these river crossings, dragging your bike up these steep boggy banks and walking through mossy bog, and then. Um, so getting to the end of that section and then suddenly being back on smooth tarmac and blasting towards uh, Alton, Alton, Alston, I can't remember. And then on to Holt Whistle was, that was just, you know, one of those days where you look around, the sun had just poked its head up and you just couldn't help but smile and laugh and cry at yourself because of just how crazy it was. Um, that was amazing. And the next morning, just you had a bit of recovery as it kind of rolled through to uh, to Kielder. But then you got into Scotland and and like I had a random dot watcher came and rode with me for a bit, which was really, really nice. Uh, John, I think his name was. Was it John? I think so. Turns out he knows the guy who brings a coffee van to our village now and again. Um, got into Scotland. He left. And then suddenly... Just the Pentlands just hit you like a sledgehammer. I mean, we just had the hardest three days possible going through the Pennines, which was amazing. And then we get to the Pentlands, and of all the routes that you could do through the Pentlands, Kevin probably picked the hardest possible route through. So you were constantly going from valley floor up to 500 metres, back to the valley floor, back up to the top of the mountains, back to the valley floor, back up to the top of the mountains. The weather was horrific in that it was just constantly torrential rain. The paths were steep, so you were always hike a bike up the climbs, and they were overgrown. So you were hike a biking through... It was like jungle warfare at times. And... It just that it was that that broke me. Um, I think I, I came off the Pentlands in a little bit of sun, came down to Edinburgh, and I'm just looking forward to nice flat terrain, taking it a little bit easier. And then just the rain doubled down and hit me hard. And I came into, I think it's Broxburn, 
which is on the about halfway down the canal path between Edinburgh and, and Glasgow. And I, I just came off the route. I came into the town and just found a co-op and just sat there and almost cried into my coffee for 45 minutes because I was I was cold. I was tired. I was wet. And then at this point, that's when the kind of the eating issue started. So I was really struggling to eat properly. I couldn't eat what I had been eating. Up until then, I'd been really... I'd been going so well on like a, a good mix of sandwiches and flapjacks and chocolate and sweets. So getting a good mix of savory and, and sweet, but all the time on the bike, which was great. But at that point, it just, I couldn't eat on the bike. Couldn't really, I had to keep, you know, I had to stop and eat proper food, which you can't do all the time. Uh, I got to the hotel that night and the, the restaurant was shut. So couldn't eat food then. And, and those last two and a half days were so hard because i couldn't eat so then moving moving on from that so you're probably at this point now where uh a a change got made to the the course actually so it was actually going to be shortened and it was going to finish in am i right in saying i I think i'm probably wrong here lock 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 loman or something no so um yeah so he, he he brought the finish forward to fort william um and he took out the Loch Lomond section uh, of the West Highland Way. Um, I mean, that's it. We already knew that that was just a long hiker bike section down by the lake. Um, but I think it was actually worse than we'd anybody had anticipated. Um, Chris, the leader, spent something like seven hours going two kilometres, and uh, he was broken at the end of that. Um, and Kevin realised that it was probably dangerous to keep putting people through that, so he shortened shortened the route off. And and, and I think only two people carried on afterwards to go through to Applecross. Um, and I I don't think I would have had the mental strength to carry on after Fort William. Um, and in hindsight, Fort William is a great place to end a race. Applecross is a pretty it's pretty but it's not a good place to end a race because there's nothing there. When you get to an end of a race like this, you need a hotel with a with a warm shower. You need shops so that you can buy some some clothes and some shoes. Um, you need restaurants so you can go and get some food. Applecross has like one hotel, which will have been full, um, and a campsite, which probably also will have been full. So ultimately, I think it was the best. It was the best result. Fort William made a great place to finish the race. Um, it was a great finishing spot right next to the hotel, uh, and I think taking out the the section around Loch Lomond was was a very sensible decision. Um, interestingly, the the diversion was one of the best bits of the race. Um, so actually, that whole stretch from kind of Glasgow, first part of the West Highland Way, around that extension up to Calendar, um, back down to Crane Larrick was really beautiful really really beautiful really rideable which i think that's that's probably the bit that we missed out the most on was just more stuff that was rideable um and that bit was amazing uh, and then that led into kind of the west highland way and really the last the last hurrah and and the west highland way is really it's um it's an interesting mix of some absolutely stunning bits like for me bridge of orkey through to um through to the king's house 
was amazing. It was stunning riding. It was beautiful. It was high. Uh, it was this mix of kind of old trading roads and old military roads. Uh, it was it was just spectacular. But other bits of the West Highland Way are just not designed for bikes, full stop. Um, you know, they're for walking on. And so it was a real kind of mix of this is amazing, this is shit, this is amazing, this is shit. And, uh, and I think, yeah, by the time I'd got to the end, I'd, I was done. I'd had enough. I was ready to stop. So it was eight, eight days, 12 hours and 30 minutes that Chris, the, the winner, finished in. Shortly followed by, well, I say shortly, and I need to find out when he finished. It was, is it Donna, what was the guy who finished second? Donna, I've got his Instagram handle. Donna Cassidy, who'd, who'd actually just come from finishing third in the transatlantic way. So, you know, spectacular performance from him to kind of do that just on the back of doing transatlantic way. It's really hard to chain together two off-road events like that really uh, sorry two long events like that so you know full credit to him chris man i mean that guy is strong i mean he was just unstoppable um he was on a bike he'd cobbled together out the spare parts bin um and but he just he just kept going and kept going and kept going a fantastic performance um and you know he's definitely going to be one to watch on kind of future races like this, definitely. And then you roll in and tell me about how, how long did it take you to finish? And I love the picture of you at the finish. It's just so epic. It's just you leaning over your bike, just absolutely destroyed. But yeah, tell me a little bit about how long did it take you to finish? And, you know, we... Were you happy at the end? Were you satisfied with what you've done? Uh, so it took me 10 days and six hours. Um, was I, ha- I mean, my initial th- feeling was one of absolute relief. Uh, I've never been so happy to climb off my bike. Um, it, it just, yeah, relief came flooding over me. And luckily, uh, the finish line was right next to the hotel that I'd booked. So uh, Kevin wrapped me in a space blanket and literally bundled me into that into my hotel room uh, and left me there to warm up, which was just you know, which was just amazing. Um, I I think it didn't take long for then just the. I think first of all, the sense of accomplishment to kick in, because you, you start to realise just what you've gone through in the last ten and a half days. And then you start to, then the kind of the type two fun aspect of it kicks in all too readily and you realise kind of what an amazing experience you've had. I mean, it was hard. I mean, that's probably, I, I would challenge anyone to show me a harder technical course in the world right now. Um, I don't think, I don't think there is one. Yes, uh, Highland Trail 550 for sure, but it's not as long. Um so in terms of the long rides, I don't, you know, the long races, I don't think there's one that's as technically challenging as that. Um, Dale's Divide, yeah, technically challenging, but, you know, a, th- a quarter the distance. So, uh, yeah, you get this overwhelming sense of, I've just done something really hard. And I came through it, and that was amazing. But then also, obviously, given what I do with the coaching, 
and also where I want to go next with my racing. It was such a great learning curve, um, both in terms of understanding how I deal with incredibly bad weather day after day after day, but also how I deal with significant parts of hiker bike and challenging, very, very challenging terrain. And then also looking at um, kit equipment, how, what equipment works for a race like this and what experience works as well. The really interesting thing I think is that the, the piece of kit that I used the least was my cycling jersey uh because i just didn't wear it i was wearing a i was wearing a thermal proper technical thermal um and i think you start looking more towards mountaineering kit or cycling kit that takes its cues from walking a mountaineering kit because that's designed to function in a high mountain really bad weather environment whereas you know a a lycra summer cycling jersey isn't it's great if it's nice and sunny but when it gets wet it stays wet and it's horrible and so yeah so you kind of start to think about what what things work what things don't work um i think so some of the stuff that worked really well um like some like what really stands out um my endura pro light um primal off jacket that was a lifesaver um it's not too thick. Uh, it's got a lot of ventilation in certain places, so it's actually really comfortable to ride in. But put that on, and then a waterproof jacket over the top, and you just you got this sense of oh, I'm now warm and protected from the environment. That that was that was a a really good bit of kit. Um, Garmin ten thirty plus. It it's it has to be the default choice for any ultra racer purely because of its battery life. The battery life is spectacular. I had issues with my spare battery cell for it, which wasn't working. But despite that, I was getting two and a half days battery life out of the Garmin device. And that just takes a whole level of stress wow. and gets rid of it because you're never worried about running out of battery power on your Garmin. And and that's that's actually a big, big relief. So... And and I'll you know I will get that I will get that spare battery cell sorted, and then we're talking four to five days, on a single charge, which means you only need to recharge, twice on a race like that, and even if you're bivying most nights, you're still going to have enough time to get that charged in the the couple of times you do stay into a in a hotel. So you know that was a really incredible bit of kit. Um, third bit of standout kit, obviously I've got to talk about Betty. Betty the Betty the Bahuki. Um the the bike was spectacular. Um the bike was stunning, the forks were stunning, the wheels were just so solid. Um so you know, big shout out to, to Shan for getting that ready on time. Uh big shout out to the guys at Button Up Bikes for helping me source all the parts in time. Uh big shout out to uh, to Conrad at Salt Wheels for getting me the wheels in time. Uh that whole package was just probably the ultimate bike to do that kind of race on and i think it's telling that out of everybody uh in the race i probably had some of the least number of issues uh so um that was yeah that was a real positive and those suspension forks i mean 
that that was they were so good um the dt swiss f232s only 100 mil of travel but that's all you need on a race like this it just allows you to ride it with just more pace more comfort and and they were awesome and and yeah ultimately it was the perfect bike for this course um i think my advice to anybody thinking about this for next year is don't bring a gravel bike this is not a gravel bike race a gravel bike will make you miserable and you will probably scratch i think one guy on a gravel bike made it to the end which was mo and hats off to him because that's a that was a stunning ride but it's a mountain bike race bring a mountain bike you know you don't you don't bring a road bike to a gravel event so don't bring a gravel bike to a mountain biking event um make sure you've got 29er wheels fat tires and ideally some good suspension up front um and then the final bit of kit that just worked really well uh was the tail fin um you kind of realize how well designed and how well engineered those tail fins are um i've had mine for kind of a year and a half now so the bushings are starting to wear and i was a little bit worried about that but then you look at it and you think well actually there's no way that's going to fall apart um it it was just it's rock solid all the way through and it's i i was a little bit nervous at first going well how is this rigid setup going to work in a very very tough off-road scenario and it was bomb proof uh absolutely bomb proof i think the one area of equipment that i've started to look at in terms of what do i need to get better at or what do i need to improve before i go and do an, a similar race is, is around the wet weather kit i i went with a, a gore shake dry which is fantastic road uh waterproof just just not up to the task in this kind of uh in these kinds of conditions and in this kind of race um both from a durability perspective you know you're getting attacked by brambles and bracken and stuff like that um but also uh just the the coverage it gives you the protection it gives you it's just it's not the same so that has already been or i've already upgraded that uh with one of the endura mt500s um and that arrived yesterday and i have to say that looks like a fantastic bit of kit the cut on it is really really good but i'm still looking at the all the other aspects of my wet weather kit uh to see how i can how i can improve that and how do i look at uh, how do i look at shoes how do you you get kind of shoes that are more appropriate to hike a bike i was using some very nice lake uh, xc race shoes um but again they're just they're not designed for kilometer after kilometer of hiker bike um so we're we um we need to look at options there so yeah so that was kind of the end of the race that was the the kit that worked the kit that didn't work but it like i say it just all led to a a sense of that was a really big race to tick off so will you be going back next year hopefully not and i say that in the nicest possible way um i think for me next year the big uh hope is that i get an entry to the silk road mountain race nice because because that's what appeals for sure um i've been to kyrgyzstan before it's a stunning place to go and ride your bike i think it's the logical next step having just done gb divide and i think gb divide has given so much experience that will really help uh, a race like the silk road so yeah that's that's got to be the goal for next year so 
fingers crossed I can I can get in and we can travel and and then everything will be built arena my program will be built around uh, around the silk road so you then start to look at what are the best events to continue that preparation so we'll look at I'll look at um I know they've just moved the Atlas Mountain race back uh, from October to February. Um, if that means there's spare places available, uh, then definitely I think that's a really good feeder raid into the Silk Road, uh, feeder race into the Silk Road. I think the other one that I would consider uh, in the UK, which again I think would give really good relevant uh, experience for this, uh, is the Dales Divide. Um, so hopefully I can have a good crack at the Dales divide. Um, yeah. And then Silk Road. So yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully I'm, I'm not going to go back. Um, that being said, would I go back? Yeah, I would. I mean, I think, I think Kevin, it, it was, it was version one of what is an incredibly tough course. Uh, was it too hard? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think Kevin knows that and Kevin knows how to what needs to change about the course because you know i think the core concept of it is is fantastic you know it's it's amazing it takes you through the best mountain biking terrain in the uk and i think with some tweaks he's got a classic on his hands um so i think yeah i think next year with those with those modifications it should be a a really awesome thing to go and have a crack at i just you know people have to be aware of what they're letting themselves in for they're not letting themselves in for a gravel bike race where you're going to do 200 250 kilometers every day you're doing a really hard mountain bike race and you may do 120 to 140 kilometers a day so you know i think if people go in with the right expectation they go in with the right equipment i.e not a gravel bike uh then yeah it it could be spectacular next year so it's all set for you to go and have a crack at it robbie um yeah maybe <laughs> let's get the escapades done first i think which is is actually um is coming up at the end of this month isn't it like i, I haven't said you know sorry I've, I've made it sound like i'm doing it you know i'd like to do it I'm going to maybe talk to you. You all heard that, everybody. You yeah. heard that. Robbie uh, like, is going to do the escapades. Uh, it is in, I think it's in like three and a half weeks time. I know. And I'd sit in there thinking. Right. So if you want, if you want Robbie to do it, comment. If you're commenting on the webpage, comment there, comment on the Instagram post, send us a message on, on our Instagram channel, send us a message on our Facebook page. Flood Robbie's personal inbox. Tell him he's got to go. Uh, I'm I'm going to be seeing Kevin next week, so I'm going to make sure you're signed up. Yeah, I, I want to do it. And it's the bike is sitting there all ready with new, fresh tyres to go. And I just came off doing this 400-mile bike ride and just getting to the end and feeling pretty epic about myself and feeling like everything actually functions as it should because I've had quite a few injuries this year. And, uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I'm just in my head going, oh, Rob, just, you know, you're probably going to end up asking. So just ask now, commit now and then be a bit more prepared on the day. Just do it. Mm, I'll talk to I'll I'll have a chat with Kevin and see um 
see if see what what he's got going on and see if anyone's dropped out and I can maybe fill a place. But yeah, we'll we will see, mate. We will see. But no, it sounds like you had a real epic adventure, mate. And I'm we're, I'm sure every person listening to this, you know, friend, anything like that, you know, we're really proud of you, and you should be really proud of yourself. And that kind of experience takes it takes a lot to get it takes a lot of grit and it takes a lot of determination to dig that deep and I I knew you were suffering and I think everyone on that course was suffering and it sometimes it just feels like on these races the just the world's gonna end because things are so tough but pushing through that is just such a difficult thing and taking yourself outside the box which really proud of yourself mate because we're all we're all very proud of you as well so so yeah well done well done mate to say the least yeah thanks mate appreciate that and i you know i just want to call out to all of the messages of support i got um you know i've already talked about some of the companies that really really helped me out so um you know soul they did a great job in getting me some wheels as always tail fin build great products and 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 they you know they help they've helped me out with a bit of guidance on 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 that um you know like i say shand turned around a bike in in a really short space of time i mean so the only people who provide you know kit to me everything else i pay for and uh and so you know it's i'm calling these companies out because they just do amazing things um so you you know uh, thanks to them for sure but thank you to everybody who sent me messages of support you know it was a load of people that i don't know were just sending me messages on instagram messages on youtube uh, and the people who came and found me just randomly in the wild um you know this support that you get is amazing and it means so much to you when you know you you're low and you're riding and you just you you just miserable and then someone comes and says hello and that's that's awesome so you know thank you to those people you know who you are um really couldn't do it without everybody's support so thanks so yeah no perfect mate and um yeah i I, probably that's that's everything i want to get out of you for that one i think that's um i think that, that ties into to it to ending this episode here mate and just giving you a bit more time to reflect on that and yeah excellent mate so well cheers it's been good it has been good to talk it through and if anybody is interested in taking on this race next year and wants to find out more then do do ping me a line um happy to talk to them and if if somebody wants to talk more about coaching in in readiness for something like this then again drop drop me a line um so yeah good it's good to good to reflect back and good to realize how much you actually get out of an event like this so it's been awesome to talk to you robbie cool and um we're going to be back soon to talk about more challenges and what's going on in the ultra world and maybe to to discuss some kind of topics that we get a lot of questions about and that's something that you know i think is going to be really good maybe discuss a bit more on nutrition maybe discuss a bit more on setups because ultra racing's changed and you know the goalposts have gone a lot more off-road you know equipment has become a bit more technical recently you know so definitely many subjects to catch up on uh certainly you'll we'll get another podcast out in in a week or two and uh yeah we'll we'll move on from there but no thank you for sharing your story neil and um thank you guys for listening 
And uh, yeah, drop us a comment, drop us a like. If you really enjoyed it, please share. You know, you got Neil Robbie podcast on the on Instagram. We're on Facebook as well. And uh, yeah, keep listening and Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Just yeah, thank you so much. Rate us highly. Cool. Thanks, everybody.